Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Um, this episode is going to be involved with architectural styles. Um, we're going to key in on one style here, a really uh, quite elaborate style, and it's going to be the Beau Arts style. And uh, when I was in Paris training uh, at the Eco Bull and the, the Chateau, Chateau de Versailles, um, I was trained in the Beau Arts, so that means very uh, high style art going back hundreds of years and you can see that how these type of art different art forms that i was trained in back then were applied to uh, historic architecture so so nearly all of the american architectural styles begin at the top and sift downward from expensive architect designed high style houses to the homes of the less than wealthy gothic and greek revival touches for instance, turned up as frequently in small farmhouses as they did in great city mansions. And the Queen Anne House was as democratic as the American flag. One grand exception to the trickle-down rule was academic eclecticism, also known as the Beaux-Arts or the American Renaissance style. Strictly speaking, however, none of these terms really refers to any particular style but to a way of thinking about styles, although it drew most heavily from Italian and French Renaissance design sources. <clears throat> Academic eclecticism used many other historical European styles and periods as well. The peak of its popular popularity spanned the years from about 1890 to about 1917, although it actually became a bit earlier and continued into the 1930s. Allied with the City Beautiful movement, academic eclecticism seemed to its many admirers to herald a true American Renaissance. It benefited citizens at every economic level in scores of American cities by inspiring not only beautiful and impressive public buildings, but also sculptor and fountains and parks and tree-lined boulevards. As applied to houses, though, the academic eclecticism belonged to the very rich. It called for the large, formal, expensive, expansive homes that were nearly always built of masonry and adorned with a great seal of sophisticated, carved, classical ornamentation. And it was really more than a style. The seeds of the academic eclecticism were sown immediately after the Civil War, when would-be American architects traveled abroad to study its European ateliers, particularly at L'Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris. By the end of the century, an entire generation of architects had been trained at L'Ecole by Beaux-Arts professors in American schools or by Beaux-Arts architectural offices in this country. The first generation of professionally trained architects in the nation's history, in fact, were at work in the United States. In Europe, the students had learned to make exquisite architectural drawings while absorbing the theory and principles of design as well as the nuances of the historical styles used in Italian, French, and Northern European builders from the 16th through the 18th centuries. By the time they came home, historical scholarship was second nature to them, and the precepts of classical design seemed just as natural. 
They did not want to copy Europeans so much as to interpret them for a modern American audience. Their restraint was a far cry from the grab bag approach of the late Victorian era, when the rush was on to identify the one true American style. This time, architects were not looking for a style as such, but for a way of integrating the best architecture of the past with modern uses, needs, materials, and technologies. All this might have remained no more than high-flown theory, but it had not been for the world's Columbian exhibition held in Chicago in 1893 to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival to the New World. Yes, we know he came here in 1492, so the Beaux-Arts style ex exhibition buildings were arranged in a lakefront grouping dubbed the, the White City, a dazzling and temporary never-never land free of the poverty, filth, and disorder that plagued Chicago since its inception and other American cities. Although the buildings were designed to last only a few months, they represented an ideal of urban beauty which struck a chord with the general public as well as within the architectural community. Could Americans become better, happier, healthier citizens simply by being exposed to beautiful public places? Why not? Optimism reigned, and similar exhibitions were organized in other cities, spreading the gospel of the beautiful city throughout the land, where it was eagerly received by civic leaders, architects, and the public. Almost overnight, Victorian designs became outdated, and the emerging modern and prairie styles were stopped virtually dead in their tracks as well. Only academic eclecticism, it was clear, could build the city beautiful. Nowhere was the idea more welcome or, or more needed than in Washington, D.C. The capital city was, frankly, a mess, cluttered, unplanned, and unkempt. With improvement in mind, President Theodore Roosevelt appointed the Macmillan Commission, a blue, ribbon, a blue ribbon committee proposed two prominent architects, Charles Folden McKim and Daniel Burnham, as the nation's leading landscaped architect, Federal, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted Jr., to oversee the updating and expansion of Pierre Lafont's 18th century plan for the city. The Macmillan plan permanently pre recast the appearance of Washington and set off a building spree that lasted until the Depression. Like the L'Enfant plan, the Macmillan plan was never totally built, but its successes were and still are very visible. The, <clears throat> they inspired other cities from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati to San Francisco to order their own plans. With this emphasis on planning, architects in the academic eclectic style were interested in more than just individual buildings. As they saw it, there was a well-ordered scheme behind the scene. Every building part contributed to a, to a coherent design appropriate for the building's intended use. Each individual building related to its neighbors in size, color, and form. And finally, the building context was as important as the building design. Furthermore, the context included not just the site of the building in question, or even the closest neighbors, but the entire area for blocks around. The entire city, if necessary, 
Consequently, the design of urban squares, triangles, and circles, broad avenues, vistas defined by sculpture, fountains, street furniture, parks, and plantings were all part of an architect's natural concern. One architectural historian has suggested that the gap that separated city beautiful streetscapes from those of the late 19th century is the difference between the cozy clutter of the Victorian parlor filled with bric-a-brac and interesting but unrelated objects of nature and art and the cool elegance of the salon, a stately, well-ordered space designed for formal affairs and public gatherings. Mansions and municipal buildings. The Beaux Arts mode worked especially well for large public and institutional structures. In the early 20th century drive toward social improvement, practically every town of any size had at least one such building on the drawing board. Thus libraries, post offices, railroad stations, courthouses, city halls, and university buildings are academic eclecticism, most visible monuments. However, it was equally useful for houses from large freestanding mansions to smaller but yet sizable attached townhouses, especially in cities like Boston. New York, Chicago, St. Louis, San Francisco, and Washington, suburban examples are much less common and small town examples are nearly non-existent, except perhaps for the ubiquitous Carnegie Library or a new post office. Design inspiration came virtually from France, Italy, Germany, England, Spain, or Holland sometimes from more than one of the, the countries in a single building, whether used for a French chateau or a Georgian mansion. However, the term academic eclecticism is best reserved for elegant, formal reinterpretations of earlier styles, not for the line-for-line -line reproductions. Rich materials elegantly handled were the hallmarks of these substantial houses. They were nearly built of or nearly or always built of masonry, often of smooth, light-colored, ashlar-cut limestone. Rusticated stone blocks with deeply cut edges are often used to emphasize the first stories or the bases and corners of the buildings. Sometimes the entire facade was rusticated so that the horizontal lines kept cut the visual height of tall, narrow townhouses. There was invariably an impressive formal front entrance usually with elaborate carving around the doorway. On many of the most pretentious buildings, the carved ornaments stretch from the foundation to the chimney caps, as reclined cherubim, flower-filled urns, or other statuary adorned outdoors and overdoors, cornices or spandrels. Columns in the classical orders were extensively used in colonnades across the fronts of buildings. As supports for arches and porch, or as colonnades grouped beneath the pediments of dormers. Balustrades of wrought iron or stone, or stone lookalikes in painted cast stone, terracotta, or pressed metal paraded across the top of buildings. Townhouses were usually built in three or four bays and were three or four stories tall, frequently five stories when it came to New York. A low ground floor or basement provided service areas and entrances but the real attention was centered one floor up on the first floor or the piano noble, 
where guests were entertained and families gathered. Often a mansard roof accommodated an extra half story at the top, particularly in French-inspired designs. Hipped or flat roofs were common in Italian models. Classical orders, classical ornament, moldings, and cornices were like universal. Like houses and other eclectic revival styles of the period, these buildings clearly to their own time and place. No matter how accurately individual features might reflect earlier eras, they were always reordered and revised to fit a 20th century American aesthetic. In the same spirit of pragmatism, the symmetrical facades needed for a feeling of classical calm were rarely allowed to interfere with the efficient functioning of a floor plan. If the exteriors were grand, the interiors were likely to be breathtaking. Commanding staircases of marble with wrought iron railings, specifically designed to allow theatrical entrances to social or state affairs, wound their way to the upper stories. Modern elevators made getting from floor to floor a snap. Nobody important was around to be impressed. Coffered ceilings with elaborate figural paintings and plaster moldings and cornices teased the eye upward and up and up as ceiling heights often seem dizzyingly close to the stratosphere. Walls were often paneled in fine woods or painted with classical murals. Massive mantelpieces in marble or wood were more models, were more, were more ostentatious display than the warmth since the latest models and central heating systems did the heating. The floor plans provided for masculine rooms and feminine rooms, rooms for sleeping, dressing, bathing. Multiple bathrooms, often opulently fitted with and always with efficient modern sanitary facilities were standard. There were formal dining rooms and smaller breakfast rooms, sitting rooms for chatting for, with intimate friends, salons for chatting with worthy strangers, morning rooms and solarium rooms, music rooms, game rooms, and billiard, billiard rooms. There were offices and service areas, servant quarters, laundries, kitchens, and builders' pantries. There were also all the necessary, uh, everything necessary for all types of rooms in every house, of course, but there were usually enough rooms to make moving easily from one part of the house to another something of a problem for many servants, to whom there were obviously a great many hallways. So floor plans required special attention to make sure they remained stylishly symmetrical, yet allowed efficient circulation by family, staff, and guests. Academic architects. This was perhaps the special genius of the American architect, as was aided by and expanded opportunities for professional training in their own country. The first schools of architecture at United States universities were established soon after the Civil War in the shadow of the L'École des de Beaux-Arts in Paris. The Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, led the way in 1865. Cornell, Syracuse, the University of Michigan, Columbia University, the University of Pennsylvania, Armour Institute, now the Illinois Institute of Technology, and Harvard, Harvard over the next few decades. In addition, some architects such as Richard Morris Hunt, the first American to attend the L'École des Beaux-Arts, set up their own atelier soon after they returned from their studies on the continent. By the end of the century, Beaux-Arts-type training was readily available in American schools and architectural offices. 
While it is true that houses in the academic eclectic mode were designed and built all across the country, there did tend to be a concentration of them in the northeastern and midwestern states. And certain pockets of Beaux-Arts enthusiasm can still be identified to this day. Newport, Rhode Island, where Richard Morris Hunt designed many great mansions is one of the most notable. The two most influential firms in academic eclecticism, however, are McKim, Mead, and White, particularly Stanford White, who were noted also for their work in the colonial revival style, and Karen Hastings for their Villard houses, a group of six New York City attached townhouses placed around a central courtyard, helped to establish McKim, Mead, and White as the dominant specialist in the Italian Renaissance style. Karen Hastings, on the other hand, generally preferred to work mostly in the French idiom. Among their smaller commissions was Namur, the Alfred I. DuPont House near Wilmington, Delaware, built of brandywine granite. It has 77 rooms and extensive gardens in the French style. I w I've been there and I would consider it a small Versailles. The Philadelphia architect Horace Trumbauer was also responsible for designing some great mansions in Newport and elsewhere. Boston architects include Shepley, Rutan, and Coolidge, who designed both residential and commercial buildings, including South Station in Chicago. The best known for its name was certainly that of Daniel Burnham, who had been in charge of the overall design and planning of the Columbian Exposition. So, and hence, the city beautiful movement did not transform every American city into a place of beauty and harmony, but it did change most of them permanently for the better in the form of academic eclecticism. While it could not provide a better home for every man, it did provide them with a standard of beauty in order that it is still part of our national consciousness as we sit here today. So, uh, thanks for listening. Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist, signing out.